This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Mariel. And I'm Luc Olivier Dumablé. And our episode this week is iOS 14 Deployment Target. All right. Actually, I'm kind of looking forward to this one because I'm going to be writing iOS code soon. So Ooh. I have stuff to look forward to. Uh, but first, some follow-up. Uh, so first, of course, an administrative note that our next episode, which is releasing on December 19th, is our Game of the Year 2021 episode. So uh, we are getting our lists ready, kind of. And uh, if you, as the listeners of the show, would like to send in your end-of-year gaming thoughts to us on Twitter, I would love to read them. Uh, but more importantly, it will be the last episode of the show for 2021. So we are going to be skipping an additional two weeks before returning in 2022 on January 16th. Uh, so just remember that uh, if you see around New Year's that there's no new episode coming out, don't worry, it's planned. And I'm sure you'll send a reminder on a Twitter account around that time. Too. Yeah, and we'll repeat it next episode, too. Uh, next up, I have some FU about the last episode where uh, Lucas, if you tried to bully me, bully me into setting up a Patreon page, um, mm-hmm. I did not actually set up a Patreon page because I looked more into it and uh, they are going to push more heavily into NFTs and cryptocurrency-based rewards for supporters and I want none of that shit. Uh, so... I ended up choosing to go with Kofi or Kofi. I don't actually know how they pronounce it, which is strange. Uh, I've been going with Kofi because it's K-O-F-I. So if you go to ko-fi.com slash Sakarina, you can go support me now. Uh, And if you support me, you get early access to videos as soon as they're completed instead of having to wait until the Sunday afterwards. So generally, that means three to four days earlier than everyone else. There are options for one-time and recurring monthly donations, uh, just because it's very poorly explained on Kofi itself. Uh, one-time donations get 30 days of access regardless of how much you spend on that uh, one-time donation. Uh, they do have a more Patreon-like memberships feature. But the catch with that is... Uh, so the way Kofi works, which is actually really interesting, is... If you use it in its most basic state, uh, you hook it up to your PayPal or to Stripe or both, and it goes directly to you. They do not take a fee at all. Huh, that's nice. Yeah, except if you enable memberships. Then they actually do take a fee. Uh, and the only way to circumvent that fee is to sign up for Kofi Gold, which adds more features on top of that, uh, which is nice, except I don't really want to sign up for a monthly membership that is currently equal to the amount I make a month. Uh, so I, if I ever have a need for the memberships feature, which I don't right now because I don't have, I don't offer enough to members to meaningfully differentiate tiers. Uh, I might do it in the future if I get big on Kofi, but right now, it's not really necessary. And besides, like anyone who wants to spend more than $3 a month to support me, they can do that already in increments of $3. So it's not like people who want to support more need this feature uh, f- to do so. Right. And what I, what I personally like in the way you described their feature set is it grows with you. Yeah. It doesn't start maybe, again, I haven't looked in Patreon for years, but it doesn't start at like maybe a mid-tier level where like you need to have an audience that you funnel through it for it to make financial sense every month for you to spend or pay a, a percentage on each transaction or a, f- a monthly fee. Yeah. And you can also like opt in and regardless of what level of uh, member you are, you can just say like, hey, I like this website. I want to give you a 5% cut of what I make uh, in exchange for, I think, a couple features that are like in early test phases or stuff like that. So like mm-hmm. they make money in other ways. Uh, so I'm not too worried that they're going to disappear randomly. Uh, 
I just want to touch on how I've self-promoted so far because I've done it very lightly, but I think it's a reasonable amount. So Wait a sec. I, I do have my own only item of follow-up and I would like you to uh, to uh, offer a public statement correction uh-oh. here. Yes. You did mention and did this same mistake again. I would like to know that I did not bully you. I just use a friendly push to make sure you would go public with it. That's a big difference. Mm. Bullying is a bit negative, and I was just being a kind friend, making sure you would go to the next step, and I know you were afraid of that, and and yeah, like I saw you mentioned that on Twitter and on your YouTube channel, I was like, mm, 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 mm. <laughs> It's funnier that way. I know it is. I know it is. So, the self-promotion I've done so far is that I made a channel update video uh, earlier this week that I posted to my YouTube channel that basically sort of gave an update on like, why are there suddenly videos on my YouTube account? It's because I have free time because I don't have a job uh, and stuff like that. And also informing people that they can now support via Kofi. Uh, that video was, was actually quite watched. I was surprised. Uh, usually when you see channel update, a lot of people skip over it. And it's like one of my most watched videos recently. So, okay, sure, whatever. Uh, at the start of every new video, I'm adding a 10-second bumper that uh, it's basically like the slide I made that basically tells you uh, you can go get early access to my videos if you supported this URL. And I think the supporters uh, at the opening, uh, I know like some creators will have like these long credits lists of everybody who supports you right now. I have two supporters, so it feels a little bit overkill. Uh, <laughs> maybe at some point, if I reach double digits, we'll think about it, right? Right. And also it's a perk, right? Like when you going back to what you were saying about memberships, it's a perk if you pay more per month to be part of the uh, list. It, it depends on the creator. I know some people who just put a list of everyone who's given them money in the last 30 days, right? So it, oh, wow. it depends okay. uh, how you want to do it. If you're quite big, it can get quite time consuming to make a credit sequence for like 3000 people who gave you money that month. So sometimes right. you cut it off by tier. Uh, but for like smaller creators, it's not unreasonable to just show the names of everybody. Um, and then the last thing I did, uh, which is kind of an experiment because I've never really seen anyone do this is if I have a video that is currently in early access for a series, I created two videos for both of my series, uh, for Swan Song and for Cesar Guided Tour that are unlisted that I can put at the end of the series playlist. And it's a short, like, I think it's 15 seconds or something video that says, Hey, you've reached the end of the playlist. Uh, if you'd like to see more, there's an episode currently in early access at this URL. So if you're binging the series or catching up on the series because you haven't watched it in like three years, which I mean, that, that makes sense for Swan Song because there literally hasn't been anything in three years. Uh, you can start watching from where you left off and then get to the end of it and be like, oh, there's a new episode. If, I, if you're really into this, you can go and give me money and see the newest episode right away. Um, so that's sort of what's going on with that whole uh, program. It still feels a little bit silly to overpromote that stuff because, like I said, like I'm under 300 subscribers, which is in the grand scheme of things very, very tiny. On the other hand, like I see the point that you were trying to make and not bullying me, which is, uh, thank you. Better to make six dollars a month than no dollars a month, I guess. Uh, is fair kind of where what I was getting from you? No, yeah, I think you're correct. the The idea is to see like how viable it is and i think what i was driving at is the earl i guess it kind of 
it kind of goes back to your taking with Cezura is the earlier you get feedback on the product, the better you know if it's viable or not. So maybe the earlier you get supporters, you could see how you evolve it. And as you for sure know, like you might be embarking in like a year long journey on this, but at least you're trying to get feedback sooner or like constant feedback or a constant uh, interaction with your current subscribers with that which i think is a good idea yeah it also has sort of given me a little push to try and get some bonus stuff out that i can put into the uh the kofi feed for people uh, that is not necessarily stuff that like I want to showcase as being like, this is why you sign up. But like uh, I, I'm working on a couple essays for my website about various video games. Uh, one about a fighting game, two about various driving video games. And I basically have a place where I can put these out and people who are sub- uh, supporting me can actually see them early and maybe catch typos or give me notes on things that they have caught before it goes live on the actual site. And it gives them like maybe two weeks to read this thing that's kind of exclusive to them, like a special limited time newsletter before it actually goes live on the site, right? So I've been pushing the writing projects a little bit more so I can try to get like maybe one essay out a month in the feed as well uh, as a little bonus. But uh, stuff like that is also in the works. Uh, so yeah, experimentation over here uh, at Sakurina HQ. Uh, but that's pretty much it for my follow-up. Good. Maybe last note about uh, your last experimentation, which is to put the video. I was looking at your playlist and from my understanding of things is, because I always forget your scheduling, even if you told me three or four times already. But at the time of recording, the next public episode that's going to be out this Saturday at the same time of the release of this episode Sunday. is... a. Yes, uh, we're recording. Uh, I'm all confused. Yeah. That's okay. But Sunday, you're correct. I was thinking it's Sunday, but said Saturday. Uh, okay, uh, long story short is the next video you're going to get out is a Swang Song episode. And yes. I saw that in the correct playlist, you add a, there's already the Swang Song episode out on coffee. Uh, so, And I tweeted it from the Wonder Swan Song account on Twitter, uh, which is where like, people basically follow it to see when the new episodes are out. So I'm sort of doing this with all my videos. Instead of having the one tweet when the video goes out, I have one tweet that says, hey, it's on coffee. And then when it's actually out for everyone, I put another one, uh, links to YouTube. So the one thing I'm eager to see in this experiment is we're about to go more close to the holiday season and i'm sure a lot of people are like me where they binge watch a lot of shit uh during the holiday season and i do wonder like how it will help uh people that might discover you in the coming weeks and just find the content and start binge watching uh those playlists especially the swung song one because it's pretty big at this point yeah maybe we'll see good so let's jump into the main topic so this week, I'm going to be running our fifth annual, yes, we are at the fifth annual installment of the iOS Minimum Deployment Target episode. And for our less developer heavy or focused audience, uh, I would like to just remind you the goal of this episode. And the idea behind me doing that every year is to revisit the new APIs and new functionalities of common or important iOS functionalities that were released in the previous iOS version. 
And you might ask, why not the current one? And the idea comes from the general consensus. Even Apple says that, even if sometimes they don't show it too much, but the general consensus that as an iOS or an Apple developer, let's put it this way, you should always support N-1 uh, OS version. So, And there's a special nuance uh, this year, actually, because you had this choice you could make when iOS 15 came out where you could stay on the iOS 14 route for a while or you can migrate over to iOS Mm -hmm. 15, which this is the first year that this has been an option for 95% of users. I mean, there there were some weird exceptions in the past, but uh, so it's actually interesting that there's a potential, I don't know, actually, I haven't seen any numbers about this, but there's a potential that there are more 14 users this year uh, left over than there were 13 users last year because they have had the option to stay on 14. Right. Especially because uh, if you are a user of iOS and, or iPad OS and you were looking for the iOS 15 and you went to settings and it says, hey, your iPad is up to date or your iPhone is up to date. Look at the bottom of that screen. There might be a section that is like half covered by the bottom of the screen that says, oh, you want to go to 15? Click here. It's like, and that's the feature Yannick has just described. So, so yeah, so it does mean that if you were an app developer this year and with the release of iOS 15 in uh, September, you might be starting to look at those, at your analytics or even general analytics, like mixed panel throughout the years always kind of like give broad statement about a from our like all the users or all the people using our platform we've seen that maybe at after three months of the release which we're more or less at uh there's already i didn't look at the numbers but let's say 50 percent of users on ios 15 so a lot of developers base that uh, into or I was 14, 14 excuse me I should say uh, base that into when to move which is the minimum OS they want to support with their application a uh, quick reminder that if you're maybe working at a company or you have different needs which means that you don't have an n-1 strategy you might have an n-2 strategy I strongly recommend that you visit our back catalog of episodes. Uh, you should listen to episode 152, which was iOS 13 deployment target as an episode. Or if you if you're really really unlucky and you move from 11 to 12 as a minimum deployment par- target, we also have an episode for that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I hope you're not one of those unlucky people. Uh, but maybe 13, okay, and you'll see why. I sound lucky because uh, some of the APIs we will be talking today uh, <clears throat> that were introduced in iOS 13, just to give you a hint, uh, made great strive in iOS 14. So if you were considering to maybe support, not support, you could do the bump because again, uh, the iOS 13 and iOS 14 list, uh, device, the supported device lists are more or less the same, but I digress. So we'll start this epi- the episode today with one of the most well-known frameworks. And Yannick, do you want to guess which one it is? UIKit? Oh yeah, we're starting with UIKit. And it's crazy because I was looking at the API diffs and I'll have a link in the show note between 13.6 to 14 uh, API diff. Somebody like Apple's has stopped doing old style Objective-C uh, editor API diffs, which tells you, okay, this, this functionality disappeared or this functionality was renamed. Uh, so somebody which I'll put the link in the show notes. Let me look at the link here. Uh, it is uh, from codeworkshop.net. And I forgot who is making that, but uh, they built uh, the uh, old style API diff 
for more or less objectivity framework because that is based on another objectivity runtime feature. So if you look at the changes in UI kit, uh, they are more or less concise into one area. And I would, I would team it or name it as making UI collection view the main control or component you should use in your iOS application. If we start with what was introduced in iOS 13 that we also discussed in the previous episode about that, um, iOS 13 introduced difficult data source, which was a way to tell the system, compute the animation between like, okay, I'm inserting one element in my collection view, in my table view, I'm removing, and not having to do this manual math, and also telling the specific control, whether it's UI table view or UI collection view, to insert a row, delete a row, and blah, blah, blah. Especially if you've built uh, applications that are driven by the network, you might run into a lot of issues where your data layer is a bit out of sync with the animation, and you, it might it will cause crashes because you might be trying to remove a row that no longer exists because you're in the middle of animating changes. So in iOS 14, uh, iOS has, uh, Apple has added a new framework called NSDiffable Data Source Section Snapshot. And the main difference between what was introduced last year is the snapshot from last year was describing all your collection view or table view, which contains sections and each section contains row. The main reason why, uh, and I won't name this type again, so if you hear me say section, section snapshot, it, it refers to NSDiffable data source section snapshot. And the main reason why it was added this year is what it, it works well and works in great tandem with another feature that is uh, that was also added last year, which is compositional layout, which means that the best example I can give you for compositional layout is it allows you to build an app store app style collection view layouts where some element, if you recall the more or less... Uh, like the today page or even like the app section or the game section of the app store app you have a long list that is vertically scrolling but you might have different section in this long list this long scrollable list where you have a carousel of elements that will you can see five elements and then we'll scroll back it's an infinite scroll so it goes back to the first element or it's a horizontal swipe where you can see a grid of elements like the, mo- the 10 most popular apps currently on the App Store. And previously to iOS 13, and even now with iOS 14, making those types of views were pretty complex, where you either had to write your own layout objects that was driving all the math behind this, or you were merging multiple collection view inside of a scroll view or inside another collection view to make say, okay, my first section, because it's now scrolling horizontally, should be a different collection view. My second section is scrolling vertically and the content is as wide as the screen, so I don't need to embed another collection view. And you can, ima- you can imagine that this code was getting pretty complex. Or you could do what I suggested last uh, last time we did this episode, which is just use SwiftUI instead. Right. But the main problem with SwiftUI, and we'll discuss that later, is that it didn't have a real equivalent to UI collection view. And especially if you want to uh, lo- load asynchronously a lot of the content. That That's was true. Also yeah, problematic. yeah. Or I should say lazy loading a lot of the content, meaning that if you have 10,000 items in your list, in iOS 13's version of SwiftUI, they were all loaded in memory yeah. once your component needs to be on screen. 
So that new snapshot called section snapshot allows you to describe one section, whereas a snapshot before needed to describe your whole content of the table view, the collection view. And now it does mean that you can have different animation per section and you have different objects per section, which means you can have different functionalities per section and those snapshots embed those functionality. At first right now, like it seems like, okay, I can understand if you haven't used the diffable that source API from uh, iOS 13, this is still a bit vague. Like, and I'm sure the main question you're having right now is, what does it give me as an iOS developer? And if you recall, I mentioned that it works in tandem with compositional layout. So in iOS 14, one of the, I think, the most powerful functionality that UI collection view gain is a list appearance, meaning that UI collection view is being built or as added APIs to make it work like a table view, which we're more or less saying it's a list, not a, a tabular view like on the Mac. And you can refer to Yannick's episode about Suzuki <laughs> or even his video about that. But this brings a list of one column uh, and it brings the the styles, plain group, insert groups with the headers and footers. And it's like, I assume it's a vertical list too. You can also have swipe gestures on cells. All functionalities that if you were decide, if you decided to be all in in collection view, you had to build yourself or you had to rely on UI table view. And Apple went in great lengths in WDBC in its documentation about this functionality. And this is making me think that they're more or less on the path of getting rid of UI table view. I don't know, and I'm eager to see. I have to revisit some of the iOS 15 content, but I wonder if the end goal uh, is that if they deprecate the current implementation of UI table view to make it a UI list collection view uh, or a UI collection view within a list appearance, that they could be bringing a real tabular control on iOS. But here I'm more or less dreaming, as you might imagine. I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. But I, I think the intent is pretty clear because especially in a lot of the video, like if you look at, if you look at the UI kit videos of 20, 2020, there's not that much content that is typical UI kit. All of the content is related to this new API that is to make a collection view act and look like a UI table view. Okay, but is there a reasoning given as to why you would want to do this? Yes, and be patient. You'll see why okay. in just a bit. Okay. Like, we're not done. Like, I, I was preparing this episode. I was not expecting the UI kit section to be so big while wow. talking about three or four APIs or three or wow. four new classes. Okay. See, because I, I'm saying this because, like, I, I'm... I'm very close to being able to actually do the framework split on Cicera and start working right. on iOS version. So if my app completely revolves around table views and you're telling me you should probably be using a collection view, I would like to at least know why I want to use a collection view. Right. And it is funny to mention that because they've also introduced a new subclass of UI collection view cell called UI collection view list cell for this exact need because it allows you to have the same style properties as UI table view, playing group and set group and all that fun stuff. And 
you'll see that a lot of the new look, especially for S14, to make... And you'll see that it was funny rewatching a lot of dub dub videos because... Uh, and we'll talk a bit more into the Swift UI section. A lot of it is to make your iOS app, your iPadOS app, and your macOS app more or less work similarly. Uh. Because one of the main benefits to that new way of constructing table use is the new sidebar appearance seems to me, and I even look at the documentation, it's unclear still to me, that it seems that this functionality is only available in a UI collection view with a list appearance or a sidebar appearance. It seems to me that to get that in UI table view is either hard or impossible. And some of the APIs I'll mention later, those APIs are only available on UI collection view, not backported to UI table view. Huh. Yeah. Huh. So let's talk about the sidebar appearance. Uh, if you've been using iOS 14 or iOS 15, the best example I can give you is the new two-column or three-column navigation you might have seen on your iPad apps. The best example of that is photos or main or mails sidebar. And one important new functionality, and that's one I am more or less 100% sure that is not available on table view, is the outline look, which means you can have native support for items in your list that have childs uh, or children, I should say, because they can have more than one. Uh, and that works really end in end with the new list appearance, with the new section snapshot, because in the same collection view, and they have, if you watch the dub videos, they have an example where they have uh, the emoji explorer, they have the favorites per uh like per categories and things alike and the categories are expendable and collapsible and all that fun stuff last but not least about uh disabled data source they also gain reordering support and while i could talk in great lengths i think the new apis really needs code example to properly understand it so i would invite you to look at the wbc link sessions in the show notes because uh, this content is pretty avian code and I think needs a visual impact. But the idea is they are now giving you more uh, APIs and more uh, even it uses uh, one of the Swift foundation uh, structs or objects uh, to tell you the difference between a collection so you can apply those and does mean that you don't have to do that much custom code to support reordering in a difficult data source. And I didn't do too much reordering in the apps I work on. So... Uh, even today, I'm not sure how hard it is on, let's say, iOS 13 and previously uh, to do that, but it seems that they have improved that greatly. Now let's talk about UI collection view and UI table view cells. And that's one of the main big changes that is part for both, that is available for both, and that it is a new way to configure any instances of cell classes or even certain views in a normalized way. So you don't need, let's say, like, a UI collection view or a UI table view cell as a label property, an image view property, and you want to take your data model. Let's say it's it's an uh, you have a data model with a name and an image. Then you manually have to apply name and image to the appropriate UI view subview in your cell. With the introduction of what Apple calls content configuration object, but I should just say. Uh, configuration object, they allow you to describe the content or even the background configuration of yourself while getting what I would like to call a system look, meaning that you don't have to 
do the manual configuration of the sub the 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 sub views to get the look you need. You just configure an object and tell yourself show yourself like that. And there are predefined like okay, I want the if you remember the uh, UI table view cell style uh, predetermined styles like default um, value one value two subtitle. Those are also uh, like factory functions on those types to give you a baseline uh, configuration object. And of course, as I mentioned, you have the content one and you also have the background one. So you have two configuration, one for the content, as its name suggests, and one for the background. So if you want to have like around the corners, you have a specific fill color and things alike. Uh, according to Apple, one of the main benefits to this approach is that the configuration itself is lightweight. You're not storing views in memory and things like you just literally need to describe the content and that's it. So it's kind of slowly but surely giving the benefits. That's my interpretation of what they're saying. Giving you the benefits of declarative programming in SwiftUI in an imperative UI framework. Another benefit that they were pretty clear about is that every time you need to dequeue a cell, you don't even need to care about its current state. One of the, uh, not I wouldn't say hard to fix, but hard to figure out what was the issue of. But then when you realize it's that type of bug, you're like, oh my God, that's kind of a dumb bug. But they're pretty hard to debug is those cell reuse bugs. Meaning Mm -hmm. that you look at the UI and it's like, why does this cell as the labels value of the cell three layers above or three rows above uh, and sometimes it happens sometimes it does not and it's you re- cl- quickly realize it's because cells are in a reuse queue to be efficient when scrolling and you forgot to clear all the properties that a specific row overrides that another does not so it does mean that when it reuse the cell boom uh, it keeps the old cache value so with this configuration object approach when you apply the state on the cell apple does the heavy lifting for you meaning that the cell after the state is applied will be in the correct state like all the other properties you might have modified and you by using this system you should not access the subviews directly but uh, it will make sure that the state is consistent with the description you gave it to and without going too much into iOS 15 approach, and I know Yannick, you mentioned that uh, you mentioned that you looked a bit, especially because you were talking about the location button uh, session in our WWDC yeah. 2021 episode. Uh, but spoiler alerts: in iOS 15, they brought the same concept to UI button, which I'm eager to see which is the next UI kit component that will get this approach because I feel it is pretty powerful. And again, we'll be seeing uh, soon that you can we'll be seeing now I would say or that you can do your own custom code either to override how a configuration is applied to a specific state because again the configuration yes describes your content but also can describe in which state the cell should be and if you've worked with UI table view subclasses um, and most cases if you wrote an iOS app you had to do once at some point if you want to have custom selection behavior or just like a custom look when your cell is selected you kind of quickly realize that managing the set selected animated the set highlighted animated on a ui table view 
sale or UI collection sale becomes quite hard to do and becomes quite convoluted. This system allows you to write a method called update configuration using state. And this mix the impact of state, which contains, is it selected? Is it alighted? Is it a drop, drag and drop target? Uh, and you can even augment it with your own custom state if needed using a key value, uh, key value model, if I recall correctly. Um, but yeah, you can do that and you can decide how this type of state should be applied in your custom cell subclass. Because while the main benefit of that is to get a consistent look, I would say, and even not only a consistent look, but a consistent API throughout OS versions, you can also override it and do that in your own cell subclasses. Because what I mean by that is, imagine if you're an iOS or UI kit developer and you had to test for all the cases that the developers do. If they add subviews to a cell, it might become quite hard to figure out what are the, poss- the different possibilities that they do. But if you start to shrink the available API or limit what's available or funnel all the modifications that are available through a configuration object, it might mean that it's going to be easier for them to support some of the cells that uh, are uh, on Apple's off-beaten path uh, in your app while still continuing to be supported every OS version, meaning that let's say you move from Xcode 13 to 14 next year, and so meaning you you now compile with the new SDK, you might have less broken UI surprises. Again, that's my interpretation of those APIs and where I hope they will bring us as iOS developers. So we'll see with that, but it seems pretty promising on that front. Last but not least, about the configuration, uh, it's not Apple hasn't deprecated the old UI view based properties yet, but they're saying that you should either use one system or the other in a specific table view or collection view. So you can A, slowly but surely update your current application to use a new system, and B, they strongly suggest you start doing that a year ago mm-hmm. uh, because they did mention that the old UI view properties are going to be deprecated in a, a later OS. And from my understanding of things, it's not in iOS 15 yet. So at least you have one more year to start seeing possible warnings. And r- rare for Apple, they actually said it ahead of time that it's going to be deprecated and not like leave it up to interpretation that, well, there's this new thing. It probably replaces the old thing. It's probably going to be deprecated, but we're not going to tell you until it's too late. Right. Again, the best offender of that too, that they said it was getting deprecated, but never got the deprecated attribute on the APIs is UI WebView. It took, I think, <laughs> five or six iOS version before it got That's true. The, the attribute. So I do hope that we're not like five or six years down that road where we need to wait for Apple to put the attribute. Because again, I maybe my main criticism of that API, not that I revisited because I haven't used it in any apps, is that if today you look at UI collection view and you want to know, how should I configure a cell? Then you have two ways of doing more or less the same thing. Wow, it sounds a lot like an stable view. <laughs> I was kind of hinting at that again, that it's going to be hard. But again, maybe the main difference is you also have recent WWC content. 
That's true. To rely on that versus uh, an stable view. Last but not least, about UI collection view itself is, uh, as you may or may not remember, that if you that in recent version of iOS, if you want to use specific APIs to use the 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 cell reuse queue, you need to register either your nib or a specific subclass of UI collection view cell to uh, the table view. So let's say in view did load, you say, okay, collection view, I want to register, like it's kind of, if I recall correctly, it's like register class for reuse and fire and blah, blah, blah. But now Apple has a block-based API for cell registration called UICollectionView.CellRegistration. And it is a generic type, which you provided your own custom or your own subclass of UI collection view cell and your uh, own data model object. And you receive, uh, you more or less receive that. And then in your data source delegate, when the delegate says, uh, the data source, excuse me, says, hey, give me a cell for this and next path. You can just say, I think it's DQ reusable cell using uh, cell registration and not an a string in the fire as before. So this is one of the APIs I'm eager to see because uh, I've used in great lengths the uh, the identifier, uh, the the string based reuse identifier, especially with classes and all that fun stuff. That also makes sure that when you first use them in your data source call that they are properly registered if not it will crash and not give you just a nil uh, cell instance so that's more or less the last point about the ui kit section and as i mentioned we haven't we have more or less stayed on on top of ui collection view a bit of ui table view with content and background configuration object but most of these new apis and feature are more or less available using collection view there's not that much new yes We'll see in the trivia section, there's a couple of new things that are more related about consistent experience between different devices or different Apple devices than anything else, new controls and things alike. But overall, for somebody that writes an iPhone on an iPad-based application without caring about tvOS or even the Mac or even WatchKit, the main benefit is the main control you use daily in your application has changed should be replaced with UI collection view and UI collection view has expanded greatly in the past two or three years. So don't sit on your roll and say, oh, I know how UI collection view works. No, 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 no. It has changed greatly and spend the time to look how it has changed because you will be surprised how it has evolved. And last but not least, I think uh, you need to start to think about not using UI table view anymore and really look at your UI table view dependencies because either it will be like UI web view and you'll have years of years of years of Apple repeating, please stop using <laughs> it and then they'll sweep the rug under you after five or six years or we'll have some surprises in iOS 16 and they'll just be like, it's gone, bye-bye. You need to update all your apps. I hope it's maybe the latter, that one, because UI table view is so core to iOS development. But... I feel we're starting to sign the same way we were starting to sign, seeing the signs about different uh, device screen sizes Mm. when they introduce size classes. I'm actually really happy that the timing worked out so that I could find out about this before I start working on the iOS app because I didn't actually know that uh, this stuff was deprecated and that I should uh, change change in that direction. So uh, you did one good thing with this episode. (laughs) 
it's not done yet. So I have still time to do more than one good thing. Good, good, good. Uh, but again, I think you're making a good point because I, my understanding, especially with what we've seen with Cicero, is you do N minus one. You support Big Sur. Uh, I think it's 11, uh, 11 O. That's it. Like yeah. you're at Big Sur, Big Sur. Um, and for sure Monterey. So I expect that when you start writing your iOS code base, it's going to be 14 and up. So you'll well, see a I, lot of I'm that. I'm not sure yet. Like, uh, I don't want to drill the conversation too much, but like, I don't intend to have like a giant collection of old OSs that I'm going to test on here. While I'm like, once I upgrade to Monterey, I'm probably going to be relatively aggressive to just make it the latest version of the Mac OS, just so I don't have to pretend that I can actually mm-hmm. maintain the old version. Uh, right. And I think because it's open source, like maybe. If people care, they can go in and do it. I don't know. Uh, but like, uh, as a single developer, especially someone who's doing it, like, not really for money or anything, uh, I just kind of want to hang out and support as few versions as I have to. Which makes sense. And again, I don't want to derail too much of the conversation, but it will be related to what we'll see when we talk about Mac Catalyst. Uh, but the fact that you are on your UI, on AppKit for the Mac might mean that you have a more stable experience throughout OS version that you <laughs> might have seen with uh, Mac Catalyst. But before we talk about Mac Catalyst, we'll talk about Swift UI. And iOS 14 contained the first major update to Swift UI because it was introduced in 2019 with iOS 13. And one of the major changes in Swift UI, especially in the way it is discussed by Apple, um, and from now on, I'll say like Swift UI iOS 14 because there's not version 2, there's not really a consistent naming scheme for Swift UI compared, compared to, let's say, SF symbol, which has uh, a version scheme which is like one, one point two, or the Swift language itself, two. or you're correct, the Swift language. So assume that when I mean Swift UI iOS thirteen, uh, I'm talking about the version that ship in iOS thirteen dot Swift UI twenty. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a bit that too, and especially because as we discussed in previous episode, it also was a bit problematic per Xcode thir- uh, iOS thirteen minor revisions. Uh, it seems that that has stabilized a bit in 14 and even in 15. So that's good news. But again, I digress on uh, Swift UI versioning. One of the main big feature of uh, last year with Swift UI is that you can now fully write your app using it. Uh, before, with the first version or the iOS 13 version, you couldn't replace your app delegate and it still had to be either like no, you have to have an app delegate. You had to either call your storyboard and then inside your views, there was maybe some Swift UI views or in your app delegate, you had to instantiate your main Swift UI view, put it in a UI hosting controller and then just pass your hosting controller to the main window through view controller. Now with the new app protocol and the scene types, uh, you more or less can just write a full app and that's, I think one of the nice things that that's why we've seen in the past year, a lot of people like, you should be all in in Swift UI. <laughs> um, the, today's episode is not going to be about that, uh, the conversation, but I think it does explain why a lot of people are really embarking in that journey. As someone who was very excited about this at the time and who played around with it a little bit afterwards, I ended up kind of disappointed with how this turned out. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's a good step, but I definitely don't think it's ready for prime time 
again, um, I haven't played too much about it. Uh, I only have outtakes like yours uh, <laughs> on both sides of the coin uh, to possibly can have an opinion and again i'm sure we can have a three-hour episode just let's ask about the that. shortcuts team how they feel <laughs> that's fair that is fair but uh the the idea behind those new objects is you could again create a like a document-based application on the mac using the document window group or you can just use a window group and have for quote-unquote for free multi-window support on iPad OS and on the Mac with your application. And you start to see that, or even last thing, is that your app protocol was also used when you use you create your WatchKit app. And that, to me, I think is the fundamental, fundamental change with SwiftUI starting iOS 14 is the way Apple talks about it. If you recall when it was introduced, it was one knowledge domain that can be applied differently to the benefits of each platform. So writing a Swift UI Mac app or writing a Swift UI WatchKit app uses the same concept, the same knowledge, but they have different object, different views, different controls that uh, takes the powerfulness of each platform to its advantage. With 14, uh, it seems that slowly but surely Apple is going to you write it once, it runs everywhere. Yeah. And again, I'm not saying that has a good or a bad. I think it's still early to figure it out, whether it is good or not. Because I think one of the examples where I see it, it's pretty good is uh, in iOS 14, or I should say Swift UI Mac or Mac Catalyst, there's a new view modifier called .elp. So you can append that to any view you write, which means that you can have a tooltip for free. And one of the nice benefits is it shows us as a tooltip on the Mac and on your iOS app, it will show up as a voiceover label. And it's the same content. And the idea was saying, if it's good for a tooltip, it should be good for your voiceover user to better understand what this button does on your application. So you don't have to think uh, I about could... the... Finish your thought. I was, I was just about to say, you, not, I'm not that you don't have to think about accessibility, but you can reuse good functionalities for one platform to another and adapt it for uh, different platforms. I, I know you're not a classic Mac guy, so this probably won't no. mean anything to you, but a System no. 7.5, I believe, onwards, had this feature called Bubble Help which is basically mm -hmm. like what you're describing, except it was instead of being a tooltip where you had to hover over something for a number of seconds and it would just show up in a rectangle, uh, it was actively tracking your cursor and there would just be like a speech bubble that would come out of a, a thing you're highlighting and it would tell you what the thing is. And I think like the help feature, the, the string you're going to put in that help thing is going to be a help message, which is not necessarily an accessibility description that you necessarily want to have in voiceover. I think those are two different domains that shouldn't be mixed together, right? Yes. Because if, if like, if you're highlighting something and like the label to the left of it says like, uh, library location and I if I use the bubble help uh, metaphor and I bubble help over that text field, my description is going to be a more or verbose description of what library location means because clearly you don't know what library location means if you're highlighting over it with the help. Whereas right. an accessibility description, maybe library location is sufficient and you don't want to sit through the paragraph of an explanation I'm giving you as to what this means. 
Which I think is fair. It's maybe just that I misspoke because it will do exactly what you just said. Ah, okay. So it's not replacing the accessibility title. And that's maybe why the, the description wo- word might be wrong on my part. But it is like one of the examples it was saying, like they had the, when they were doing this presentation, they were using a kind of a iBooks app equivalent. It's a read wrap. And I think one of the buttons, it says mark complete. So it was an icon on macOS on iOS 2, but when they read the description, it was saying like, mark complete, and then there was a tooltip description. It says like, mark complete button, and then there was a long description. Okay, right okay. That. Then that, that is better. <laughs> and again, I might have misspoke because I forgot the exact wording. Uh, but yeah, all of this is to say is, if you watch What's New in Swift UI from 2020, you see it clearly that there is this clear distinction between cross-knowledge tool and cross-platform tool. A lot of the example, and I think the best example they give you is the their new quote-unquote app delegate or the, your abstract uh, fits in 140 characters. So it could fit in a tweet <laughs> and it is more or less the same basis for your iOS app, your iPadOS app, your macOS app, your watchOS app, your tvOS app and all the fun stuff. And I'm, I see where they're going with this, even in 14, and I wouldn't even say now, today in 15, I think it's still early, so I'm really eager to see where it goes. But a lot of the changes around Swift UI and the rest of the UI kit changes I haven't mentioned are around that, making sure that the controls you have access into macOS and iPadOS and, and iOS are consistent, that they are more or less the same. And one of my trivia points is that, for example, now on iOS, you have access to a color well and a color picker that are part of UIKit, which are also part of SwiftUI. Uh, the UIKit classes is called UI Color Well and UI Color Picker View Controller. And those existed for years in AppKit on macOS. So a lot of those changes that you've seen in UIKit are about that and again they made a clear com- like a clear a clear statement saying like what we've this they didn't say it this way but more or less what we've just discussed about the list the sidebar appearance are all present in list for swift ui to go back to something that Yannick mentioned also uh lists gain uh, swift ui gains what they call lazy list and grids which especially for grids, especially the lazy version, meant that you're more or less going back to what UI collection view allows you to do with different configuration, having different columns, different layouts, and all that fun stuff. So more and more, and I haven't really looked, I looked this summer, but I didn't look for the preparation of this show. When I watched the WW session for 2021 and talking about iOS 15, that was, again, what I felt, and we'll see in about a year when we discuss that again, is that the changes on the UI framework are not adding new functionalities. They're just making the UI framework consistent. And I'm really good to see where we end up with that in a couple of years. So that's more or less what I have to say about Swift UI. Um, maybe the last thought about this is especially in the past year uh, if you follow developers that are pretty active with it and also bump their deployment they don't have an n-1 but they might have an n-0 deployment strategy uh, you did see that 
so if you i became uh, more consistent especially on ios like compared to what it used to be on ios 13 where the general consensus was swift ui one in big quotes was really well defined for watchkit functionalities whereas with swift ui 2 in ios 14 it became more viable for apps and for sure with the introduction of widget kit which is all swift ui became more viable for other different things in the os last but not least in the uh, ui section which as you can see it's pretty big for this year we'll talk about catalyst and one Ooh. of the <laughs> yeah uh, okay sure i'll let you uh, decide whether it's that or not but again one of the big changes is to make again a consistent experience uh one of the first changes that was done in big Sur's version or in the xcode tool for that is that Apple brought iOS-only frameworks to Catalyst, even if they don't make sense, to make it easier to port your code base, your iOS code base, to macOS. So, Joking aside, uh, I love this. <laughs> right. Even if they forgot done jack shit, you don't have to like, uh, like pre-compiler if def them to get uh, to make sure you don't import them things like that. So I also feel like this applies to. Maybe I'm talking out of my ass here, but I, I feel like this applies more broadly also to just AppKit apps as well. I feel like you have access to more frameworks that you traditionally think of as iOS frameworks within AppKit apps as well. Hmm. Okay. Do you have a, an example for this? It's It slipped my mind, but there was something... Uh, I'll try to remember it. Okay. Okay. But there was something specifically, I think, for Cezura that I was like... Yeah, this is something that I could really use in Cezura, but it's iOS only. And then with that iOS 14 update, it sort of became available on the Mac. But God, I can't remember what it is. Um, okay. No, but that's, that's okay. And I think one of the example I know I haven't used at work, but because of the type of app we use, we build at work, we're really heavily dependent on uh, external accessory framework. Mm. And I could, like, even... When Mac OS was introduced, I know some of my colleagues, I even look at that. There was a lot of if and def and making sure you remove the code that needs access to EA accessory, uh, EA framework. So, and I know it was what part of the list. It was like, hey, yeah, you don't have AR kit support on your device. Now you don't need to not compile that code. You can have runtime check. Uh, so certain framework like ARKit were mentioned as you can have a runtime check to see whether your device you're running on are, su- are supporting such functionality versus just completely removing. Because again, if you think about it and to go back in our general theme of everything runs everywhere, maybe at some point some AR functionality might become available on the Mac and you don't want to have to recompile your application. You want to just say, oh, now it's enabled. Poof, it works. Ignoring the testing issues with what I just said. Uh, Another big change that makes for better uh, iPad apps and it is also available to Mac Alice is how to handle uh, keyboard events. Uh, a lot of the shortcodes before, even on the iPad, were like kind of like the system tells you when you're cu- like, like if you want to do Command R for refresh in a browser, you have to say, "Hey, tell me when Command R has been pressed." Whereas now in iOS 14, Big Sur Mac OS applications, you can just listen to the events when a key is pressed or if it's pressed for a long time and things alike. So and same things for 
pointer events. You do have access to the real raw pointer events, uh, which is pretty interesting for different types of application. For sure, the main example that was mentioned is games. Um, because it makes more sense on the Mac and a bit too on iPad apps, especially with keyboard navigation, the same focus engine that was available on tvOS because you're reading, you're using a remote and you need to more or less select controls on the screen is now available everywhere. So it does mean that once you write your, if you write support for focusing on your elements, they work on tvOS, they work on iPadOS with keyboard navigation and they work in Mac alias for, uh, keyboard navigation same thing with collection view ui table view ui collection view have a new property called selection follow focus so the apple has implemented system behavior for you to gain it for free and again as we discussed in the ui kit section a lot of apps are based on ui table view and ui collection view one big thing that people were bitching a lot is that the optimize for mac setting uh, is now still available, but can be removed. And that was the default Mac catalyst mode that applied a 77% zoom uh, scaling. And now you can also say, no, no, I want to literally the Mac UI, uh, which remove this scaling factor and also gives you, they don't say it this way, but what people have discovered in the past year is it gives you not the iOS look to components, but more AppKit based components. Like you don't know they're AppKit based, but they look like AppKit components. And in the end, when people went spelunking, they were real AppKit components. Like if you were coding yourself an AppKit app on the Mac. Uh, one thing that I really enjoyed because we've talked about photo library management and things alike is the photo editing extension that are available on iOS are now also available on the Mac. So if you were coding one of them with this new version of Mac Catalyst part of Big Sur, you can bring your photo editing extension. And it does mean that now photos.app on the Mac as extension, photo editing extension, because I think there was maybe one or two that I was aware of that were uh, the Mac photo editing extension. And there was one that was not on iOS. I don't think it was on iOS, but... Do you remember the one that was developed by an ex Aperture engineer that is now kind of Aperture into a photo editing extension? But I was, I think it was only available in the Mac. So I kind of I can see the screenshot of it in my head, but I don't remember what it's called. (laughs) Me neither. But I kind of wonder if the, this developer did the inverse, meaning they've coded it for the Mac first and now brought it on iOS. And if, well, well, I digress again. The idea is if you were, let's say, I don't know. ViscoCam and things like, and yeah, your photo extension on iOS, you can more or less use the same code and bring it to your Mac Cadiz application. Uh, lastly, on UI things, uh, Big Sur gained what we used to call since iOS 7 tint color, uh, that I did not call accent color, but that's available on the Mac. Uh, and especially, uh, I recently got one of the new iMacs, so it's pretty nice to have, uh, have your uh, accent color follow the color of your device, but it also means that you can play with this accent color, meaning subturn controls in your application. You can change the accent color and not just follow the system accent color or your app-wide accent color. So like thin color since iOS 7, it can be tweaked per portion of your application. And again, with the sidebar that we discussed in great lengths in the previous section of the episode, you can have, let's say, your first element that follows your tint color, and then you have a second element in your sidebar that is maybe the favorite. So it's an art, or you want it to be red, even if your accent color is not red in your application. 
Last but not least, but it's more about, and last but not least about MacAllelist, this is a point more about how to distribute your app and less about how to build your app, is that now they support, or since last year, they do support universal purchase. So you no longer have to have a Mac-specific bundle ID. And that's the default new behavior on new apps. If you were one of the early adopters and you have what I like to call a Catalyst base, uh, no, Catalina base Catalyst application, <laughs> you do have to go in the documentation and follow uh, from what we've heard in the past year, lengthy steps <laughs> to uh, merge back your bundle IDs into one and enable universal purchase because more or less Apple painted you in a corner when you were using the, I think it's the Mac iOS or the Mac Catalyst dot with normal bundle identifier from your iOS application. And that covers Mac Catalyst. Next up, let's talk about my favorite framework. No, I shouldn't say that. I will regret saying that, <laughs> but one I dearly love, uh, Core Data. So um, one of the big recent changes in Core Data is what they call NS Persistent CloudKit Container, which more or less takes what was NS Persistent uh, Container, which is Apple's definition of what a perfect or an ideal Core Data stack should be and makes it sync with CloudKit. And since its introduction in iOS 13, one of its main downsides is if you want to use its automatic behavior to sync to CloudKit, you add to sync it with the private database in CloudKit, which more or less means the one that the iCloud users that is currently logged in and using your app on their phone, it's their own private database that only them have access to. One of the big, big, big requests Apple was saying, and that's why they're bringing uh, added support for this, is literally support for using NS Persistent CloudKit container with public database to share data with multiple users and not just like, oh, I want to share like this this data with Yannick and no, no, all your users. Uh, one of the examples they said they've received is people want, especially for games, they want to be build a leaderboard. I guess they don't want to use game. Uh, why am I? The game center. Why it's so game weird kit? they would use that as the example, but okay. I guess it means a lot. It says a lot about game center, but you know, I guess. Uh, but yeah, so the idea is they've now modified and they've now augmented APIs around NS persistent CloudKit container to make your life easier to synchronize your data with a public CloudKit database. So one of the first option is on that object, you have a new property called, the property is already there, but there's a new sub property to that property called UI uh, cloud kit container options. And the new database scope property allows you to say either you, if you want to talk to a private database or a public database. Um, after that, so after modifying your code, you need to go into the cloud kit back office on the web and make sure that all the types, so all the record types, which are equivalent to your NS manage object entities uh, should have two indexes for each record type. So you need to make sure that you add an index for the record name and the modified at properties because cloud uh, core data uses them to synchronize the data from CloudKit to your devices. Private and public data. I'm not too familiar with it, but I, this is something that was pretty clear even when I started to get to understand more CloudKit is public and private databases don't have the same CRUD capabilities 
whether you're logged in in iCloud or not, and things alike. So Apple has updated NS Persistence Cloud Kit container with a multiple of APIs, like, for example, can update record to indicate whether one of your NS managed object ID can be modified in the current context, meaning that possibly you might have to, you might want to have edit controls in your application. I want to remove entries from this uh, public database and you might not have the rights to do so. So there are simpler ways because they were showing a lot of codes if you were watching the session and reading the documents like, okay, yeah, here's the, like, 20 lines of code you were used to do uh, to do this exact functionality. Now we encapsulated that into a functionality like can update record. Also, in the similar functionality, you can also ask it, can I modify certain uh, object? Maybe they are read-only and things alike. Um, so that's that. There's a lot of those CRUD functionality that now you can ask your container that is aware of uh, CloudKit and, and its public database to do that. I think one of, I will call it the main downsides or the main problem is that not only public databases not only have the same CRUD functionalities as private databases, but don't have the same functionality at all. <laughs> and especially when they start about how CloudKit and CoreData syncs data between each other. And that's when they start to say that when they use private databases, they can more or less ask CloudKit Give me all the changes for this database. And in one call to the data, the, to the API, they can do that. And that's the type of maybe operation you used to do if you were to wrote your own code with CloudKit called CK fetch record zone changes operation. And its name is a mouthful, but more or less, it gives you all the changes for all the record types in your database. Pretty nice. You do more or less one big call to the backend and it gives you all the changes Per, I don't know if it's per time or per modifier token, things like but they take care of that. Whereas on public database, that type of functionality, I don't know why, they don't go into details why, that's not available. They have to use a CK query operation, more or less say like, give me all the change for, or give me all the entities for this record type. And that's the type of operation they have to do per entity to define what are the changes. Well, I, I assume the reason that they have to restrict it is just because the volume of data that would be in a public database would be humongous and you only want to get the data that's actually relevant to what your user is caching locally. Like you're not going to have an offline yeah. cache of your entire public web app. I agree. But again, it's kind of weird because again, if you do have a lot of simple data, like like how much simple data you you have or like how much like publicly available data do you have maybe you're right it's about that i don't really know to me i was even like understanding i, I think it boils down to what i'm about i was about to say too is the way that they also detect deletion in a private database is they use a tombstone or possibly i'm not sure it's implemented this way but like you might have seen in uh, APIs that they just look at an archive flagged. Yeah. Uh, and that type of functionality doesn't exist in a public database. So you have to implement your own archive flag to do that. And I was like, okay, maybe it's going to be heavy, like you said, if there's like 10 terabytes of data in the public database to keep tombstones for all the deletes. But Well, I, I'm just taking the use case from how Apple tends to pitch CloudKit, which is, hey, you're a startup. You don't want to have a backend for your new startup. 
use CloudKit. Mm. We have vague pricing that we might not talk to you about. Anyway, right. use CloudKit, public databases, and then it's like suddenly you're Facebook. And, uh, well, I, I don't know. You probably get turned off by the pricing by then, but <laughs> I don't know. But like, you don't want to wind up in a situation where someone builds an app, it becomes, it scales and becomes much bigger than they thought. And then your entire framework is designed around apps not being successful. <laughs> no, I, I see your point. I see your point. Again, I'm eager to hear more from certain people that have built product on top of CloudKit to start talking about what are their usage to use the, cloud, the, the public database. I kind of like, they mentioned receiving a lot of feedback from developers about this. I kind of wish people have goes on like long rants or long essays on the web uh, about that. The only and, CloudKit app I actually use is 1Password and that sort of seems on the way out, unfortunately. So right. <laughs> I don't know how well CloudKit is doing in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, I've seen, like, I've attended the workshop. For, I forgot. I think it was uh, the new concept that Trisof is doing, which is kind of like more or less like yearly workshop. They have workshop throughout the year because of the uh, of the pandemic. Uh, and one of them was somebody building a task manager. Uh, of course. On, on top of, no, but that's their job. Like, that's their, that's their, not startup, but they're like, uh, their product okay so it's not like the everyone uses the same tutorial project and therefore no, everything no, no. is a task manager <laughs> i don't think we've built a, a to-do ask but i know the developer i follow them okay. on on twitter and they do a to-do app uh, as their commercial product uh, but again, even then, we mainly focus on the private database because, again, it was about storing yeah. user data so you want it to be there and all that fun stuff Okay, uh, let's shift gears because I want to mention two general core data uh, API improvements. The first one is about uh, batch inserts requests and batch update requests that they now have a block-based API. So before, especially for a NS batch insert, uh, the best example they were giving is uh, they are trying to import a lot of the uh, earthquake data from to government API uh, and with previous version of NS batch insert request, you have to more or less pass it, it a big uh, array of data at once. Whereas now with the block base, with the block base API, you can just pass it one object at a time, only load in memory that one object. Uh, and it's a bit more efficient and also even more faster this way. Um, so they compare those two approach versus they even compare it back to, oh, if you were to do that using the normal, I create from memory with an innocence manage instance, and then I save it and then I create a new one. Oh, it changes performance and memory consumption versus the old API and the new block based API. Last but not least, you might uh, listen to some of the context save notification and a lot of the core data notification. And for multiple years, those notification in the user info dictionary add real instances of uh, NS manage object. Now there are new notification you can listen to that are the exact equivalent of them, but they are object ID based, which is way safer for thread purposes because mm. in core data, the object IDs are secure to pass in from one thread to another or just pass in every RG application and just ask 
when you receive the object ID, give me the object for this object ID from your context versus passing in the object and making sure that your own code has enough safety to not do something that is not trade secure or trade safe. In That's court, huge. It is huge. And again, like context did save or object did got inserted, but it's like object ID got inserted. I forgot the exact name. I didn't note them, but bunch of the notification that were returning you objects are not returning you object IDs. And that concludes core data. The last section, and I'm sure you're not expecting me to talk about this, but we will be talking about web technologies. Uh-oh. <laughs> yes. So I would like to spend a bit of time on changes for Safari and WebKit. Usually, oh, right, uh, right, right. It's the desktop iPad stuff, right? No, that was in 13. I just... Just general, uh, usually I try to find like new, new frameworks or in, interesting frameworks. And I, I felt that this year I wanted to focus on just web technologies. Hmm. Um, so it's kind of weird because usually I focus on, uh, UI frameworks. And again, uh, what I realized, especially for 14 is that a lot of the changes apart the UI part of Safari and things alike and how to build UI for web applications. So again, um, a lot of apps are web apps. And I was like, let's go explore. And I really do that. So I wanted to look into that. And that's why I wanted to include a section about web development in this deployment target episode. So one of the first big thing that Apple said about uh, Safari 14 and all its platform is that they call it a feature or more an improvement is that Safari 14 on all platforms is better as better web APIs interoperability come with other browser. Meaning that if you write an app using Edge or IE or whatever, or Chrome, let's be honest, Chrome. IE doesn't uh, exist anymore anyway. I know, I know. So, uh, or Firefox. But let's be honest, you all write uh, uh, Chrome web apps these days. That's People, true. That's what they do. So, but more or less what they're saying is they've run a lot of more tests and they modify Safari 14 on our platform to make sure that it reacts more or less the same way as you would expect it to work on other browsers. So again, I think this is one of the things that Apple is like, okay, we need to make sure that uh, when we adopt web, web APIs or web standard that we make them react with the same way as Chrome, because if we want to keep our users, that's what we need to do. Though, to be fair, I don't think most web developers have an actual issue with the consistency of how Safari does things. Like, a lot of the times, the inconsistencies that uh, Safari has are political decisions more than they are actual, um, it, like, bugs. <laughs> so, like, uh, for some reason, like, uh, let's say before uh, there was, like, a meta tag that you could put on your page that would prevent the user from zooming in certain scenarios. And in certain cases, like, uh, if you were making apps, uh, web apps that were mimicking iPhone apps, you can't zoom an iPhone app. So you would disable the zoom so that, like, mm -hmm. you couldn't accidentally zoom in the the web app and later on they decided well for accessibility reasons we don't want that feature anymore so that feature just got thrown aside and that's an inconsistency that's a political decision because other browsers will do it it's just they decided that they would prioritize the accessibility to other user interface purity decisions let's say uh and there's a lot of that or the other political decision is we're just not going to support this stupid API that everyone else has decided <laughs> to implement because it's stupid and we believe right. it's a bad for the web, which good for Safari. I wish they did it more often. Um, but 
you know, web, web developers, they usually have in their mind that the web needs to advance as a platform as much as possible. And Safari is just an obstacle in that. Semi-related to interoperability, um, it's funny uh, to me how Apple always boasts that Safari, or at that point Safari 14, is always more performant than the previous version. And every year as a user, I always find places where Safari like bugs down so much. <laughs> but again, they give you stats on how it's better for developers performance-wise and also for users. But I think the main reason I included a web dev section is I felt that at least with Safari 14, there was a lot of focus by Apple about web UI things. So you'll see what I mean by that. I think one of the things they mentioned is part of the new APIs. They've added support for web innovation in JavaScript, a resize observer to detect sizes change on containers, which to me seems pretty powerful because again, I'm utterly bad and I'm sure I'll repeat it 10 times, but I'm pretty web into CSS or web development. Uh, but it seems to me that this thing, the resize observer is there to fix one of the main issues. Like you render your web page in the person in the, the perfect size that it is developed for, but then you resize it and it breaks. So they were showing a great example about that. They've added an async clipboard API by by flash and many more other APIs. So uh, I won't go into too much details about the many more other new APIs they've added. I strongly suggest you read the documentation. And one thing that was interesting is part of that presentation and part of the documentation is they mentioned a lot of the functioning were also introduced in minor version of, Xcode, of Safari 13. So that's why I think it's good to revisit them now that we're talking about iOS 14, macOS Big Sur, because you might realize if you look at the analytics that you have users that are running the latest OS. So you might start stripping code that looks or you're 13 or you're in Safari 13 and uh, use directly the system behavior and not depend on third-party libraries that are there for compatibility reasons. Actually, uh, you mentioned analytics, and I should also pop this in because it was relevant at work uh, for the last couple of years, probably two years, uh, which is intelligent tracking uh, prevention on mm -hmm. Safari is a real thing, and it really fucks up your analytics uh, for iOS and Mac users. And you're going to see a lot less uh, Safari users in your analytics than there actually are. And if your clients are people who live by the analytics and they refuse to believe that this is something that is slowly going to be eroded away by people upgrading their iOS versions, they are going to be very mad that their stats don't line up with what they expect to be seeing. Uh, so, uh, that's the thing. It keeps getting better every year. And every year I had to remind them, like, Every fall, you should expect a fall off in your being able to have visibility into what your Apple users uh, data is. And if it's important to you to have that data, uh, you should put more analytics in on your application side that doesn't rely on JavaScript embeds and stuff that can be filtered out by Safari. Good. Keeping on the team of this uh, deployment target episode where I talked about UI functionalities, uh, all of the next points are going to be about that. Uh, one thing that, again, I don't write uh, UI library components for the web, but one changes that they mentioned about uh, 13.1 uh, is that they now support uh, CSS shadow parts. And it seems to me like a good way to describe 
the public parts where uh, your UI component libra web library uh, might allow people to change how it looks. Uh, and one thing they were demonstrating it with is they have kind of a Instagram, Instagram clone uh, for cat things at Apple. And uh, they were showing like uh, in their text editor buttons, they are like a bold button, italic button, and they were exposing it using shadow parts from CSS and a user of their library could say, oh yeah, I want the bold button to be styled differently, but I don't want to allow users of this library that I've built to change the layout of those buttons and components. So I give them extension points or customization points via CSS to say, you can modify these, these, and these because I approve those UI customization or UI styling decision versus allowing you to modify the whole layout of web components. So that was pretty interesting to me, again, as a noob in CSS. Uh, while we're on the topic of CSS, it seems that Apple has had a new uh, font families to do more or less what you were able to do on iOS since the introduction of uh, of uh, San Francisco, which is to say, I don't want to use San Francisco. I want to use the system font. So they've added the system-ui, ui-sand-serifs, ui-serif, ui-monospace, and ui-rounders font families to make your web app more at home on Apple devices because it will, Safari will do the right thing and use the appropriate font, whether it's running on Safari 14, Safari 15, if they do the tweaks to the exact version of San Francisco or New York or uh, SF Mono or even SF Rounded. Perfect. Um, last up in the web, and it's about media. And one thing that was interesting because we were talking about that in previous episode is the fact that IS browsers support uh, the uh, why am I blinking on Ev? Is Web V? No, the oh. web the 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 Google video format that YouTube uses. Uh, is it VP one? Oh it is. yeah, or VP eight, something like that. So I think that's more recent. But in Safari fourteen, they were mentioning that they support WebP photos or image format. So it's kind of funny that. Now Apple is now supporting an open format from Google from 10 years ago because <coughs> open web. <coughs> but uh, kidding aside, though, I think one of the interesting things that they were doing and that I read about WebP is that it more or less gives you smaller files compared to JPEG or PNGs with the same quality. So if there is a benefit of using WebP images, even if it's a open format from Google in big scare quotes. Uh, it seems to have great file size improvements compared to JPEG and PNGs. The video format we were looking for was VP9, not VP1. Okay, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Uh, and last but not least, the uh, other elements are about custom video players. And it seems that Apple has now exposed multiple APIs that they were used to expose, but using the standard uh, JavaScript endpoints. For example, the remote playback API to expose AirPlay devices and picture-in-picture -picture are now using now standard APIs and not just a Safari-specific uh, API. So it does mean that your custom web players can use those those standard APIs and support them. I hope that you do. Please do because picture-in-picture -picture and also uh, AirPlay support is pretty neat, uh, but my hope is not really too high about this, and that's kind of why I was mentioning that you can do it. 
last but not least about Safari, uh, I want to talk about the security. So Safari 13, uh, one of the big changes that was nice is it supported the web authentication API, but the main downside to it was that it relied, or it was the first implementation of it, relied on the security keys, whether the USB, NFC, or even Lightning for iOS devices. But in Safari 14, in all platform, it allows you to use Touch ID or Face ID for the same security benefits without having another device to authenticate you. So to me, this is a pretty big benefit to uh, having web authentication. So if you use an app that is dependent on web authentication, you might not need to have a FIDO key, for example. You might just be able to use Touch ID or Face ID if the web developers have updated it. But yeah, so that's my small detour on web changes. Again, it might seem a bit weird to discuss about these, but again, uh, I do believe that if you look at the analytics, you might realize that there are more users using those modern browsers than you might have expected. So it might time to go look at your compatibility checks in your web application and possibly get rid of some or modernize some of them to use the modern API, especially since some of the APIs I mentioned are more or less Apple no longer building custom APIs in Safari, but using the standard or the quote-unquote standard ones so that it is more cross-compatible between browsers. Last up for today's episode, I was not expecting to talk about it, but I wanted to make an honorable mention, is that I will caveat it that it's still not out yet, but (laughs) with the latest version of Swift, Apple has introduced, or the, the Swift team is about to introduce a new way to build or new language features to help you build safer concurrencies a concurrency uh, functionalities in your application with async await Uh, and the main reason i talk about it already is because there was a lot of big push this summer since apple mentioned that async await was coming to swift that when developers learned that it was ios 15 or latest mac os compatible only there was a big pushback to say please support it on older iOS versions. And the Swift team gathered feedback, and I think, I was about to say unsurprisingly, but I think a bit unsurprisingly, because we've seen throughout the six, seven years, seven years of since Swift's introduction, that the Swift team and the Swift community is really welcoming this feedback and kind of like reconsidering decisions that may, may, may make may have made some sense internally at Apple, but when it's out in the public, people are bitching about it. People have are bringing good arguments to the Swift teams. They kind of reconsider that. And one of them was backward compatibility. Um, that functionality, async await, is a part of Xcode 12, 13.2, which is still in beta at the time of recording. Uh, no, wait. It, Async await is part of Xcode 13, but the backward compatibility functionality is part of 13.2 beta because it came with the Swift language that is part of Xcode. So while I'm not saying you should adopt it, I think it's going to be interesting as kind of an exercise for our listeners to start looking into that because I'm looking at how it could improve the uh, completion block L we might have in our application, like a one completion block calls another and another and make this more kind of a like imperative code where you say like, okay, I do this async call, but then uh, the method completion comes back uh, in the same function, even if it's an async call and all that fun stuff. 
And it seems that at some point in the next few months, that's going to be available to be back deployed to your app if it supports iOS 14. And I think even iOS 13 is the kind of the the step, the, the, the bare minimum. So it does mean that even new language features that were incompatible with older OS are becoming compatible with OS, and you don't have to move your deployment target to support it. But again, uh, I was not closely following, but like kind of like following from far away. Uh, And I've seen that there was, and there's still a lot of bugs with those functionality and even more with the back deployment functionality. And as if you look at the uh, Swift evolution and all the discussion on the forums, even the Swift team are happy to do it, but they were saying, yeah, we kind of said it's feasible, but it's kind of full of acts. So, <laughs> uh, I'm eager to see where this will end up. And I guess we'll see that, uh, when we discuss in the iOS 15 deployment target, because it will make total sense to discuss it at that point. But it's interesting. Again, this could be yet another big revolution in the way you write Swift code in your applications. And, you could start using that more or less when it ships. Whether I would suggest that or not, that's a different conversation. I would err on no, but it will be available to you. Last but not least, I want to talk about some trivia. I did mention about uh, some just trivia APIs that I think are interesting. I mentioned about the color well and the color picker. The other one is that uh, UI image picker controller is going to finally going away. So that's more or less the uh, control that allow you to pick image from your uh, photo library. And it's going to be replaced, with, uh, it is being replaced by something called PH Picker, which is more or less a, fo- a mini photos that app asset picker, which allows you to share album, places, people, tags, like use the um, the language processing and say, I want pictures of dogs. And it use uh, all the f- new functionalities of the photos apps of the recent years to bring that up to you it also works in tandem with the new functionality that is called limited photo library access and apple mentioned that if you want to have access to the photo library uh, you should start with ph picker first and then see if it's not enough for you then you might have to ask access to the photo library of the user by starting with limited access uh, and the other point is it important in SF symbol version 2.0. This is the first time that SF symbol is now available on the Mac. So it does mean that all those symbols, A, compared to the 1.0 and 1.1 and 1.2, there is now more assets that are available to you to use. And B, you can start using it starting Bixer. Sure, it would be cool if I could get it to work at all. I haven't really? been able to get it to work at all, but huh. uh, cool. Hmm. Uh, I hmm. I do <laughs> wonder if it's an issue. I know, I know you use storyboards, so I do wonder if it's an issue with storyboards. Hmm. Yeah, Interesting. I don't know. It's fucking weird, man. <laughs> and that trivia section completes my iOS 14 deployment target episode. Cool. Uh, so you can find show notes to all of the APIs discussed on this week's episode at limitlesspossibility.net slash 173, or you can find all of our past episodes, including all of the back history of deployment target episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. The show is on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. Don't forget to send in your gaming thoughts of the year. 
Uh, we are also individually on Twitter. I'm at Sakurina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And Ducadivier is at... Lucanoche. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And we'll see you in two weeks. Should I send my hot takes about Game of the Years to our Twitter account? Or should I keep that for the next episode? Keep it in your head. Okay, that's good. See you in two weeks.